Is there such a thing as a traveler? Not a Delta. Because we know on one flight, Mike in 8C prefers reality TV to reality. So we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. While on the flight after, 8C is occupied by Jen, whose favorite snack is tea. That's why we provide fast, free Delta Sync Wi-Fi available for SkyMiles members. Because at Delta, we know. Refill? Everyone flies their own way. Delta. Keep climbing. Free Wi-Fi available on most domestic flights. Terms of use apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Yeah, the charcoal mess. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. The year is 2007. And when a big city cop goes to a tiny rural town, Swan! The movie, Hot Fuzz. everyone and welcome to unspooled i am paul Shear. i am joined as always by amy nicholson as we look at the best films of all time are they good or do we just remember them that way this month is a little bit different because you have picked our films that's right we opened it up to you for our fifth year anniversary to pick films to tell us what movies you want us to cover and you picked four bangers the movies that you think should be on the list of the 100 best movies of all time that will be sent into outer space. And this was a film that was picked in a landslide. Edgar Wright's 2007 Hot Fuzz, a movie that was going to originally be titled Hot with Two T's Fuzz because they liked that kind of look and that was the amount of letters that most like uh, action movies had in their titles. But... uh Simon Pegg said, no, we can't put two T's in hot because the only question I'll be asked at Junkets is why are there two T's in hot? And I don't want to do it. Uh, So it is (laughs) just hot fuzz. What does hot fuzz mean? Because I have to feel like I still don't know. I I don't know either, but it's a perfect title. I mean, it is like hard to kill, you know, marked for death. It feels like hot fuzz. Like it like fuzz is definitely cops, but the hot maybe hot-headed. I don't know. We're going to break down this and more. We will have more answers than what does hot fuzz actually mean besides just sounding good. We will. And I want to say it up at the top. When I found out that we were doing hot fuzz and we were talking about the end of our last episode on Roger Rabbit, I was like, I think I didn't like hot fuzz. I think I gave hot fuzz a bad review. So I went up and I looked at my review and it turns out I did like it. Actually, I was relieved. I called it ridiculously dumb and ridiculously good. And then I went on and I called Peg 
a quote, small, angry lima bean with a badge. Wow. And then also because I was like TAing in classics at the time, I said that his quote, quasi romantic relationship with his buddy is a sidekick role as old as Gilgamesh and Enkidu. Wow. Can you tell I was a TA in classics and losing my mind and writing on the side? Yes. And I love <laughs> it. Oh my God. Well, you know what? Um, that relationship is really interesting because it was originally written for a uh, a romantic relationship that they actually blended into the Nick Frost character. And Nick Frost, uh, by the way, only agreed to do this movie if he could name his character, which he was able to do. But this movie is the second of a trilogy. We're going to get into, is it the best? Where does it fall? Where does it fall for us personally? I mean, according to our audience, I think it falls as number one. Yeah, it does fall at number one. And I want to hear from people defending that choice because we are going to be going through all of this in our climactic episode at the end of this viewer choice month. If you have not already put in a vote, you can go online, tinyurl.com slash unspooled vote. Let us know. Yes, hot fuzz. No hot fuzz. Yes, Roger Rabbit. Yes, there'll be blood. Whatever your four votes are, defend it and we will read your genius words aloud. And there's also a voicemail number that you can call to leave a voicemail for us we will actually play on our fifth episode. Tell us why this was your pick for one of the best movies ever. 424-419-5745. 424-419-5745. And don't worry, that's a Google number, so you can call it night and day, 24-7, whenever you want. You're not waking anyone up. Now, we talk about a lot of things. As always, the show wouldn't be complete if we didn't talk about an animal in this film. But, Amy, we didn't talk about one animal in this film, and I think we should maybe just touch upon it now. It's Samson the dog who played Saxon the dog. Um, there's one scene where they're going out and interviewing people uh, out and about in town. And uh, Samson the dog was not allowed to become a real police dog because he was considered too friendly. So he got his start in acting. Oh, he was rejected from the force? He was rejected from the force. Sorry, Samson. But I hope that your uh, residuals from this movie will buy a lot of good kibble. So now, Amy, without any further ado, unspool it, sir! It's 2007, and Edgar Wright's Shaun of the Dead, a horror comedy, has gotten a lot of buzz. So much so that his second feature has double the budget and now is tackling a different genre. That's right the Hollywood cop action movie. Emphasis on Hollywood because Britain really doesn't have a tradition of cop spectaculars. Britain prefers detectives, which is elementary, dear Watson. Hot Fuzz follows a top-ranked London cop named Nick Angel. That's Simon Pegg. And Nick Angel is just too good at arresting people. Now, I know what you're going to say, but the fact is you've been making us all look bad. I'm sorry, sir. Of course, we all appreciate your efforts, but you've been rather letting the side down. It's all about being a team player, Nicholas. You can't be the Sheriff of London. If we let you carry on running around town, you'll continue to be exceptional, and we can't have that. You'll put us all out of a job. So his superiors promote him by sending him very, very far away to a sleepy town named Sandford down in the southwest corner of England. According to www.somersetlive.co.uk, the website of this region, there are nine stereotypes about this corner of the country. I'll list what they write. We are all straw-chewing farmers. We all wear tweed flat caps and wellies. We are all unsophisticated, friendly simpletons. Everybody drives a combine harvester. We all have thick accents. There's too many cows. And we live on cheese and cider. And you know who actually knows all this very well? Edgar Wright. He's from this region, and most of these stereotypes make it into the film. 
Yes, because the people in this town are the stars of this movie. They are all weirdos, and they are played by terrific actors. Timothy Dalton, Jim Broadbent, Lucy Punch, and future Oscar winner Olivia Colman. Now, at first, Nick is bored out of his mind. To keep busy, he tries to find crime everywhere. But he and his partner Danny Butterman, that's Nick Frost, keep coming across grisly, fatal accidents. Eventually, Nick suspects that these are not accidents Someone in a black hood is murdering people, and no one wants to believe that crime is actually happening in this small, perfect town. And then there's a lot of explosions. Hot Fuzz was released in America on April 20th. Yes, 420. Thank you, everybody. And it did very, very, very well. It made actually over twice the box office of Shaun of the Dead and is, in fact, the highest grossing film in Edgar Wright's Cornetto trilogy. So, what was on the zeitgeist? What was on the radio? Well, it was a hit by. Akon, a man with his own run-ins with the law. And here, Akon is a man singing about another whole community that refuses to believe. Not refuses to believe in the rule of law, not refuses to believe in the reality of murder, but refuses to believe in the fact that Akon should totally be boning this hot girl. Oh yes, we gon' fight, believe we gon' fight, fight for our right to love, yeah. thought we last forever i feel i'm hoping and praying things between us don't get better Men steady coming after you women steady coming after me seems like everybody want to go for self and don't want to respect boundaries i i don't know if you understand this but me picking out these top one songs on the zeitgeist every week for the show is really just a curse on my own brain because they always get stuck in my head and I'm always losing my (laughs) mind. And I do it for you. I do it for you, Paul. I appreciate it. And I I appreciate to see our musical selection. We really found a lot of bangers and a lot of one-hit wonders in here. This one is not high up in my memory, but that doesn't mean it wasn't a hit. I just wondered for how long. Two weeks. And then it got taken over by a Nelly Furtado, Justin Timberlake, Timbaland song. Now that one, I know. (laughs) You know, Amy, I was surprised, and we talked about this last week a little bit, that Hot Fuzz was the choice. Edgar Wright has made great movies. I feel like there's a lot of allegiance to Shaun of the Dead. And I know that when I saw Shaun of the Dead, I was kind of blown away. I just loved it. It felt like it captured something that I hadn't quite seen before, which is a comedy that really played the horror elements pitch perfectly. And I think that that's really why Edgar Wright explodes here is because what he was doing in space already, inventive camera moves and brilliant directing and writing, he now was able to take to a big screen. People really recognized it. So this second film had very high expectations for me and all of my friends who loved Shaun of the Dead. Yeah. The buzz around this film, I remember being so intense in that way where like in retrospect, I tend to feel almost sympathetic for like the directors and the actors who are at the center of it. You know, and it's like, here's your follow-up hit. Don't fuck it up, boys. I mean, that seems nightmarish. Oh, and I think it's doubly hard when you have a movie like this where it kind of feels like a sequel because it is the same writers, Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg, and it stars Simon Pegg and Nick Frost. So when you come in, you're already coming in with this expectation that this is kind of a sequel. But I remember sitting in those seats for the first time and taking a second to adapt to these new characters because they're very different than their Shaun of the Dead characters. 
They are, and yet they also have that bond at the center of them that makes Shaun of the Dead work, which is that when Simon Pegg and Nick Frost come together as a team, you really buy it. You actually really buy the friendship between these two men as leads. You know, a friendship that goes back, like, at this point, 15 years, they'd known each other. Wow. I mean, have you ever heard the whole stories about how they know each other? No. So, back in the 90s, Nick Frost was working as a waiter at this Mexican restaurant. Uh, its name was called Chiquito. It was in the center of London. There's, a, It's a chain. Did you ever see that episode of The Great British Bake Off? That was the Mexico episode where the internet lost its mind because, like, all these British people and their idea of Mexico was just completely demented. I mean, a tiered Tres Leches cake. A tiered Tres Leches cake. <laughs> Impossible. How do you do it? Impossible. Impossible. But anyways, the vibe of that episode, the sombreros and the mustaches, the serapes, all of that, is basically this restaurant. I tried to find like an old commercial, couldn't find it, but I did find a clip of them talking about who they really see themselves as, as a restaurant, a destination place. It's a sexy, exciting, vibrant restaurant and bar, serving freshly made food. Tex-Mex style. The atmosphere at Chiquito hits you the moment you open the door. Lively music, the smell of fajitas, and a warm, friendly greeting. The noise of laughter coming from the bar and the relaxed restaurant diners having a good time and wearing sombreros. <laughs> anyway, Nick Frost was a waiter, one of the best waiters, according to Simon Pegg. He made gigantic amounts of tips. Everybody loved him. They met through mutual friends. Simon Pegg was just doing stand-up. Apparently, they all went out for dinner one night, you know, three weeks into kind of casually knowing each other. And when Simon Pegg moved a salt shaker, he did that little sound from Star Wars. You know, the one where like Chewie scares this tiny robot and the robot runs away and the robot does like this. When he did that sound, Nick Frost looked at him and was basically like, oh, my God, my soulmate. You know that little sound clip. I know that little sound clip. Best friends ever since. And so when Simon Pegg would go and do stand-up at night after his shows, he would stop by the restaurant. He would drink a bunch of strawberry margaritas. He would wait for Nick Frost to get off work. And then they would just like walk to Nick's house and they'd get really stoned and they'd watch a lot of movies. And that's their friendship. And he would try to get Nick to do stand-up with him because he's like, Nick, I know you're a waiter, but you're the funniest guy I've ever met. And Nick tried it and he got so anxious getting up on stage that he was like, I can't do it. Not for me. So finally... Simon Pegg used his juice to write him a fictional role in space, being like, he can handle this. This isn't as scary. And he did. Ta-da, bada-bing, bada-boom. And that's how they came up together. And by the way, if you've not seen Spaced, it is great. I fell in love with Spaced after falling in love with Shaun of the Dead. Uh, I found my DVDs of it and started watching them. It's a great, weird British sitcom that stars and is written by Simon Pegg and Jessica Stevenson and directed by Edgar Wright. And it really does set the template for the relationship of all of these guys. And in many ways, I think it really sets the tone for Shaun of the Dead. You feel like these characters kind of moved into Shaun of the Dead. They were in their wheelhouse. But in this film, just going back to what I was saying in the beginning, like I think that Simon Pegg is stretching a little bit here. I think he's doing something that we haven't seen him do. We are seeing him as a buttoned up, no-nonsense, very stern, non-drinking cop you know and we've seen him before as being an aspiring writer we've seen him as like kind of a a schlub and this is from minute one the the film just opens in this really big visual fun way but we are not seeing the simon Pegg that we are used to in that moment no he is being like i am simon Pegg, actor i mean he's stretching himself 
This man had just done a Mission Impossible 3. He is like, I am tough. <laughs> well, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that Mission Impossible 3 is a, a tremendous departure. I would argue that he's actually doing a version of what we've already seen him do in Spaced and Shaun of the Dead. Like, he's playing the comic relief. I love him in Mission Impossible. But I think that this is the first real big turn of being a tough guy. Because his Mission Impossible character is not tough. It's not like he's trading he punches tougher. out there. He gets tougher. Ish, I mean, I, I've seen the new one. as the new one. He's got I some, have not seen the new one. He does some but, glowering. There's okay. a little glowering. All right, fine. Glowering. He does some glowering. Actually, wait. You know what I was thinking? The way that Simon Pegg runs in Hot Fuzz, you know, he's always like running, running, yeah. running, like ramrod straight back. In interviews, he always like said that he was running like the Terminator 2, that that was his, that was his right. model, the T-1000. He was trying to run like the T-1000, especially when the T-1000 is a cop and is running all scary. But you know who also does kind of run like that is Tom Cruise. And I wonder if there's a little Tom Cruise in his run too, but he didn't want to say so because otherwise maybe he wouldn't have made it all the way to like the current Mission Impossible. <laughs> well, I would say that this movie takes from every great action film. I mean, this is why I love this movie. I am the Nick Frost character. I had that wall of DVDs, which by the way, were Edgar Wright's DVDs, Edgar Wright and his brother and Joe Cornish's DVDs. They put them all together on that shelf uh, in the film uh, to show the scope of what he had. But that was me. And I'm still buying DVDs. Now with things disappear, I'm getting 4Ks, I'm getting steelbooks. But I love these movies. And Edgar Wright really captures so many of these styles. I would say there's a lot of Joel Shoemaker, like that kind of Batman quick cuts. There's also plenty of uh, Michael Bay in here. They really do call out a lot of the references. In a way, this movie is a meta movie, but it's completely grounded in the reality. It's not making fun of these things. Like, they are commenting on characters that have these movies in their world. Yeah, I mean, one of the things they kept trying to draw a line of in interviews was, this is not a parody. You know, parody means that we're making fun of it. And Simon Pegg kept saying, we're not sneering at these movies. We're looking up to these movies. Edgar Wright was saying, now that I've tried to make these movies with like moving cameras and explosions, I realize how hard it is to be making these movies. In, and to my point, that's what I think makes Shaun of the Dead so special. It's not just a zombie comedy, a lazy version of that. The movie has stakes, it has emotion, and it's beautifully shot. At Delta, we know Mike and HC prefers reality TV to reality. So we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. On the next flight, 8C is Mandy, a foodie. So we offer all types of food options. Because at Delta, everyone flies their own way. Delta, keep climbing. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Now, I want to just talk about the conception of this film. This film took about 18 months to put together. And you were talking about the core of this film. And the core of the film, obviously, is Simon Pegg and Nick Frost. Did you know that in the early versions of the script, there was a love interest for Simon Pegg's character? 
And they they kind of just got rid of that and they just replaced it with Nick Frost. They didn't even change the dialogue in the scenes. That's how their relationship is so kind of tied together. I thought that was so interesting. Obviously, certain things were changed, but so much was already there from a pre-existing version of the script. I mean, that makes so much sense because I can see how in some of these scenes that he has with Nick Frost, if you just sort of say the dialogue a little bit differently, a little bit softer, and then you put romantic music over it, what goes from just like a bro conversation does feel romantic. Janine used to say I love my Lily more than I loved her. Is that why you split up? What? Because you'd done it with a plan. No, no, no. It was more about me being obsessed with the job. That's good though, right? Is it? I, I did miss a few dinners, you know, parties at birthday or two. Listen, mate, I... Her dad's funeral. <laughs> I just want to be good at what I do. You are good at what you do. You just got to learn to switch off that big old melon of yours. That's the whole problem, Danny. I don't think I know how. I can show you how. To me... It's really Nick Frost who sells that scene, that kind of quiver in his voice, that intense way that he is just looking at Simon Pegg with so much adoration. Like, you do this kind of stuff, and I want to do this kind of stuff. And yes, like, the dark, cynical part of my soul is like, this is why I'm really terrified of cops, actually, is they watch movies and they're like, yeah, we want to be like that. They watch cops and they're like, cops is nothing but like going around and tackling people all day. When I'm a cop, I'm going to do the same thing. And I think that's a lot of what's really, really wrong with law enforcement. But fine, I'll forgive it, I guess, when it's like Nick Frost blinking his eyes and just seeming like such a kind of sweetie little guy. Well, and I think also the conception of why this movie works and what's so funny about this is this isn't a movie about cops being cops. It's a movie about one cop being incredibly extreme, so much so that the beginning of the film starts with him getting fired. And I loved this scene. I mean, this scene is great because it's a movie that is full full, chock full of cameos. And this opening scene where he is being demoted or basically transferred out of the precinct is truly just the best of the best. You have Bill Nye, Martin Freeman, and Steve Coogan as his superiors. And I just remember being so excited in the theater going, like, oh my God, they got all these guys in the same movie. It felt to me like The Love Boat or Cannonball Run. Like I didn't even understand that could be possible. Now, as I understand a lot more about um, British uh, cinema and the small community there, it makes a lot more sense. But that blew my mind to see all these like amazing voices of comedy all in one film. Well, yeah, and I think it's a really good introduction to just the tone of this film and the style of this tone. That kind of repetition, how's your hand? How's your hand? How's your hand? Because this is a movie that I think really thrives on like repeated jokes, the repeated editing that I love, where it's like door slam, door slam, open door, open door. You know, this kind of pacing of letting you know exactly how this is going to work. People don't really talk like this, but people are going to talk like this and you just accept it from the first scene on. The kind of absurdity. And what I think is really great about these intro scenes that we have in London is In that idea of what they're saying to him, we can't have you here because you make us look bad. That is basically the cops of London saying the exact same thing that Sanford is saying when they're in their town. They're saying, 
we can't have these, you know, jugglers here, these crusty jugglers here, because they make us look bad. And it's this united front of like institutions that refuse to look bad being set up right in the very beginning. And I would go even further to say that something that I think really resonates now more than when I saw this movie in 2007 is make America great again. It's like, this is the idea of this town. We want to make this town quaint and beautiful and free from anything that could be construed as being ugly or bad. And you see how that kind of uh, explodes on itself. You know, that it, it kind of creates this false version of the town. Yeah, they don't care who they have to hurt to get it done. I mean, Jim Broadbent basically gives Trump his campaign slogan right here. Keeping dog muck thieving kids and crusty jugglers. Crusty jugglers. We lost the title and Irene lost her mind. She drove her Datsun Cherry into Sanford Gorge. From that moment on, I swore that I would do her proud. And whatever the cost, we would make Sanford great again. By the way, Jim Broadbent, he appealed to Simon Pegg and Edgar Wright saying, I I want to be in your movie. Put me in your movie. And they wrote this part for him. And he is fantastic in this movie. I mean, again, we'll talk about the cast as we go through this. But this town, you mentioned it early on, this is Edgar Wright's hometown. This is where he grew up. He actually was an employee at the supermarket where one of the big climactic fight scenes happened. He based the character that Timothy Dalton played on his own boss. Like, this movie is intensely personal. The biggest thing that they did was they CGI'd out the cathedral. Yeah, cathedral. I didn't know this, but a cathedral in England is what makes a town or a village officially a city. It's like, yes. if you have a cathedral, you're a city. And because Wells, Wells is where he's from, Wells is a town that had like 10,000 people when he was growing up, but they had this ancient cathedral. And so because of that cathedral, it was officially a town. It was officially the second smallest city in England by population. And I think that this connection to this town kind of makes this movie a lot more interesting. It's not just a fish out of water, you know, a Michael Bay-style cop in a small town. It's a Michael Bay-style cop in Edgar Wright's town. So there is this idea of protecting and highlighting the beauty and the weirdness, not just making fun of it. Going back to what you said about parody, it's not just about people from small towns are stupid. Uh, This is, you know, to me, I think, an incredibly thoughtful idea. And I love how this movie presents at midpoint an incredibly twisty Agatha Christie style plot of why all these murders are going on that totally works and is grounded. But at the end you reveal, oh yeah, that, yes, that could be true, but our reasons are way more simple. We just, we think that they're bad actors. We didn't want her to do this and we didn't like that. Like it's so, it's so black and white that I feel like that's, the fun of this movie is like kind of pulling the carpet out from underneath the genre. Like they give you both sides of it. Oh, but we do care, Nicholas. It's all about the greater good. The greater good. How can this be for the greater good? The greater good. You see, as much as I enjoyed your wild theories, Sergeant, the truth is far less complex. Blower's fate was simply the result of his being an appalling actor. <laughs> you murdered him for that? Well, he murdered Bill Shakespeare. What? Oh, 
The Dramatic Society is an important feather in our cap. Couldn't let Blower jeopardize that. Not when we had two semi-professionals waiting in the wings. Let's not forget that Greg was an extra in Straw Dogs right. and Sherry portrayed a cadaver in Prime. Yes, I know! Martin was less concerned with the reputation of the village than he was with his sordid affair with Eve Drake. And so Eve deserved to die too. Oh, she did have a very annoying laugh. <laughs> Wait, do you know why Wells, where Edgar Wright grew up, is called Wells? No. Because it has three wells. It just has like three there it is. I ancient, love it. famous wells. So they're like, okay, this city is now called Wells. And I looked up the coat of arms of Wells, and it is a flag with three wells. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine growing up in a town just called Wells for its wells. That I went a little hard, and I was looking at the um, the Twitter account for the kind of police station of the region because they have like a Twitter okay. account kind of so for that kind of goes over several towns. So I was like, what kind of crime is happening in Wells? Let me see what their Twitter is talking about. And here's what I found. <clears throat> we are appealing for the public's help after two large dogs were spotted walking through parts of Frome without collars or an owner. We're investigating several incidents in which a man has indecently exposed himself to members of the public on a cycle path. And then they talk about how they just had Knife Awareness Week, where they went to the school and they, quote, involved the students in education and awareness around the dangers of knife crime. Oh, I love knife crime. Okay, don't joke about knife crime, because when I did a movie in Arizona, there was a police blotter. And every day... Some motherfuckers were getting stabbed. It was crazy, like multiple stabbings in a small town. I think that knife crime, and look, especially in the UK, is going to be on a rise. Knife crime. I want to see a movie called Knife Crime. That is a great <laughs> title. They also, by the way, the cops do uh, meets and greets with the populace at farmer's markets. And they have said that in the last year, quote, overall antisocial behavior has reduced by 30%, which is beautiful. And also, then I got intense. Uh, I was like, okay, but can you actually be, you know, an accordion player? Could you be a juggler? Could you actually be a, a, a frozen living statue in one of these towns? And they do have a busking guidance. They allow them. They actually allow them. So that is nice. But they say that particularly noisy entertainers, ergo bagpipes or drummers, should not perform for longer than 30 minutes before relocating. I guess what I'm saying is this movie is sort of real. Maybe. A little bit real. Maybe. Maybe. Edgar Wright said that whole thing about, like, a lady being mad because the newspaper reported her wrong age is true, and it actually happened to his mom, and she's still mad about it. Well, if we're talking about mothers, the mother of Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg are the judges of the best-kept village competition near the end of the film. Uh, So they are on camera there, too. So it all comes together. It does all come together. Would you want to live in a town like this? It looks quaint. Everything looks quaint. I I feel like when I uh, lived through COVID, I talked to so many friends who moved to Oregon and all over and now are all coming back within like the last couple of months. I feel like it was great for about nine months. Then it took them about a year and a half to figure out how to get out of there and then come back. I, I think that that's kind of what everybody goes through on some level, <laughs> you know, like this idea of like, I want to go to this town. And then you get really claustrophobic in that town. You're like, I have to get out. Like you love the idea that there's one restaurant, but then after nine months, you're like, there's only one restaurant. So I, I, I see both sides of it. I think it's nice to go to a place like this. I don't know if I would want to live in a place like this. Well, then you're never going to be the heroine in a romantic comedy. I mean, that's then that has been uh, the biggest problem of my success. I will say, as we were talking about three wells, I want to talk about another uh, three that's important to mention here. Obviously, 
the Cornetto trilogy, right? The Cornetto trilogy is what they call Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, and The World's End. It's the three films that this team made together, movies that starred Nick Frost and Simon Pegg that were uh, co-written by Edgar Wright and directed by him. And each of the films features a prominent ice cream, right? So Shaun of the Dead has a strawberry-flavored Cornetto. That's the you know, kind of the red signifying blood. Then Hot Fuzz, this film, has the blue Cornetto, which is the color of the police. And The World's End features a green mint chocolate chip, which is like a sci-fi uh, element there. Which one are you eating? Oh, I'm going to probably go for that strawberry flavored one. Really? You're a strawberry guy. Oh, I like a strawberry. Yeah. I'd be going mint. But I do think like the Cornetto thing gets tied in here pretty well where it is while he's buying a cone and eating a cone that Simon Pegg finally has the breakthrough that allows him to solve this. You want anything from the shop? Cornetto. No luck catching them killers then. It's just the one killer, actually. No luck catching them killers then. It's just the one killer, actually. No luck catching them killers then. It's just the one killer, actually. No luck catching them killers then. It's just the one killer, actually. So, Mario, you got brain freeze? No, I got brain wave. Get us back to the station now! I mean, I love that line. Brain freeze? No. Brain wave. Is there such a thing as a traveler? Not a Delta. Because we know on one flight, Mike in 8C prefers reality TV to reality. So we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. While on the flight after, 8C is occupied by Jen, whose favorite snack is tea. That's why we provide fast, free Delta Sync Wi-Fi available for SkyMiles members. Because at Delta, we know. Refill? Everyone flies their own way. Delta. Keep climbing. Free Wi-Fi available on most domestic flights. Terms of use apply. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Now, well, let's talk about this police department that he's in. When we first meet uh, Simon Pegg, like we said, he's in London the police precinct looks state-of-the-art. It's amazing. We see that Simon Pegg has won, you know, many an award. Uh, awards like uh, Operations Shakedown, Operations Crackdown, Operations Showdown, Operations uh, Takedown. There's that weird headline, Hero Gun Cop Saves Family. It's like, <laughs> Hero Gun Cop? What, that just sounds like Mad Libs. Well, they have to make sure that, uh, you know, they set up that he's very good with a weapon. Uh, but also, I think that they take some shots at press in this movie plenty of times, as we see when Nick Angel is referred to Nick Angle. And this kind of brings me back to what I was saying and how he is ridiculed by the police department in this small town. I mean, this small town police department is absolutely great. I love everything about it. The characters here, to me... This is the ensemble that I think does something that most cop movies don't do, which is really pad out their supporting cast. Yeah, they're all bad, but they're all bad in just different ways. You know, some of them are just completely ignorant. Some of them are blind. Some of them are not paying attention. 
they're pretty much all not paying attention, but they're all different characters. It's not sort of like a, a blah of uniform bad. There's different shades of bad. And just to see Olivia Coleman, like my goddess, show up, very few lines, all pretty much erotic. And this is one Doris Thatcher. She's our only policewoman. She's not a policewoman. She's I've seen her bra. She's a police officer. Being a woman has nothing to do with it. Oh, I don't know. It comes in handy every so often. <laughs> I could have given you the tour. I've been around the station a few times. Yeah, every one of her lines is basically like sexual innuendo. I wanted to ask you if you noticed something else about this precinct, um, which is the twins. Um uh, the, the twins that are working the front of the police precinct, right? They're always behind the glass wall. Um, do you know how to tell them apart? No. Okay. Uh, one of the twins is reading books by Ian Banks, while the other is reading books by Ian M. Banks. The same author, but he used two different names to differentiate his more serious literary work and uh, the other to do more of his sci-fi work. Uh, but I thought that was a really funny, subtle thing. When you're talking earlier about wordplay, and we just talked about Olivia Coleman, there's so many little details like this that just run through the film that are that I think really keep this movie alive. It's not just relying on one type of humor. The humor in this movie is goofy at times. Like, even the idea that the greater good is something that's repeated throughout the movie. I mean, it also is our biggest hint to what is actually going on in this movie. But it's something that just has a rhythm. And you talked about that rhythm early on. The way the film is shot, it's very slick. It it, it doesn't feel fat like I think a lot of American comedies do when they open up to improv, right? Where it just feels like the scenes can kind of live in this bigger space. Like this is a movie that wordplay is front and center. It is so tight. I mean, to me, the hero of this movie is honestly the editor, is honestly Chris Dickens who edited this. He also did Shaun of the Dead. That sequence where Nick and Simon, wait, that can't be right. Nick and Simon. Simon Pegg plays Nick. Nick Frost is named Nick. That's really confusing. That's going to just scramble me the whole time. (laughs) Well, this is because when they were doing research for the film, Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg discovered that a large amount of police officers were named either Nick or Andy, which led to the character's name of Nicholas Angel and the two Andys. And the Angel part of Nicholas Angel was after the music director. And Angle was actually a joke based on something that happened to Nicholas Angel, the music director. There's a lot of confusing things in here, (laughs) especially if you're working on this film. That makes sense. That makes sense. And it does sound like they absorb themselves so much in cop life that when they were walking around in costume shooting the movie, people would just think they were cops. But back to my original point, back to my original point about like Chris Dickens being a genius. That sequence where Simon and Nick are watching movies for the first time after they're a little bit drunk and the way that it is intercut with the man who owns the gigantic house getting like stabbed and killed in his house being blown up on fire. Oh, yeah. The way they cut back and forth between these two things, you know, the editing of like grabbing a beer, getting knocked out to Simon collapsing on the couch, pulling leg to pulling leg, you know, the way they're breathing heavy and then he's got the gas on. Just everything cutting between the two of them is a masterclass. It's a masterclass. I don't know why this editor didn't work with Edgar again from what I can see. I was watching this being like, I want to hire this editor tomorrow for anything I'm doing. Well, you know, I was actually thinking about that, too, because the editing here is so specific. I was wondering that if on set it was hard to even 
pull in exactly what they were trying to do because everything is very short cuts. Chris Dickens also edited Some Dog Millionaire, uh, and that his editing, I think, is something that he is known for, and his style of editing is something that I think, if done poorly, is annoying, right? This idea of transitions and fast cuts. Oh, if done poorly, you're like, I hate this editing. Get me the fuck out of here. Yeah. And this is something that I feel like is so intentional and used throughout the film in a way, not just for moments, like every bit of this, you know, from his transition from London and the amount of trains and cabs and everything he has to go through with his plant to get there. It, the, the movie has this pace at all points. Yeah. And it feels like it's really purposeful. It doesn't feel like it's trying to punch up something boring. It feels like it's driving towards the entire theme, the entire like vibe of this film. Absolutely. I think that this movie, if anything, if I was to give it any sort of ding, would be in its length, oddly enough. Like, I think this movie is a little longer than it needed to be. I don't know if you felt that. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you get to about the hour mark and everything is set up, ready to kind of fall And then you have another hour to go. And not to say that I'm watching the clock, but it felt like, oh, oh, there's more. And I really forgot about that second hour. Like that was the stuff that I didn't remember about the film. I remembered so much about that first hour. And I feel like that first hour is what people talk about when they talk about this film. The second hour is a little bit of cleanup of where we're going, but it really... I think isn't as dynamic as that first hour, even though that's where the big action pieces are going on and things of that nature. But there was just something I felt this time and I enjoyed the hell out of it. I love this movie. But in rewatching, it, I was like, oh, this feels like the pace is off. And it's interesting because the editing is so on. Yeah, it's weird, right? I think to me, as soon as the action completely takes over, I lose probably 30% interest. And that has right. nothing to do with actually the action choreography. I think the action no. choreography is really good, really clever. I think all of the knockouts are intelligently thought out. You know, the different things falling on people's heads, the fact that they're trying not to make it too bloody. We're not really killy, killy, killy so many people here, but flower pots are clonking on them and people are getting knocked out by beer kegs, you know? I mean, but they're it's also really getting a pair of shears yeah. in the throat and a head being knocked off. I mean, it is bloody without being gross. It is shocking without being disgusting, right? And I think that that's a really interesting fine line to walk. And it's a a line that I feel like people push in, oh, how gross can we make it? But I think a quick disturbing image is way more effective than a lingering one. Yeah. I think like the gross kills are all done by the Black Hood squad. Mm -hmm. Like when the the steeple falls on the journalist's face. Right shocking so shocking that you're really like whoa 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 that's great but then when like simon Pegg starts killing people those don't get as bloody necessarily unless it's something they do to themselves like trip and fall and you know accidentally like stab themselves through the throat with a steeple but that said like as as much as i admire the choices in it it is so much action that i just can't like something in me is like it gets very very bored when it's just relentless 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 without i think much much time to breathe. Well, I think that there's a part of 
the movie that you lose when it gets to that point. It becomes the full Michael Bay movie. And I feel that way in Michael Bay movies sometimes too, where we get to that final 30 minutes and it's just sequence, 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 sequence. I feel like that in Star Wars sometimes. It's like uh, the first Eat of Star Wars, especially A New Hope, where you're doing that trench run. It just can get a little like repetitive action sometimes to me. I like a John Wick action scene. I like a Jason Bourne action scene. I even like, if we're talking back to Indiana Jones, like a Steven Spielberg action scene that feels more kinetic and alive where you can follow it a little bit more. Here, it was aping a lot of styles that I love, but I think it can get, you know, like all these movies get a little bit long in the tooth because you also want to show all the cool shit that you actually did. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I guess that is kind of the irony at the heart of it, which is this is a movie that, to them is very much like a love letter to these kind of bombastic action movies that they love. And then when it becomes the full, just bombastic action movie that they love, it gets a lot less interesting to me. You know, the the closer it gets to it, the less I care. And I think what we're doing is we pull away from some of the comedy that this movie has been doing so well, which is character comedy, wordplay comedy. And we are really just kind of appreciating the art of making a great action movie, right? But we lose a little bit of the other of the other stuff. Yeah, and it's shocking to me to think that this movie could have been a half hour longer, that the first cut was a half hour longer, and it got just more into the subplots that we only get a glance about here. You know, the one that's a lot like Roger Rabbit, actually, that at the core of all of this crime and corruption is land development. Sorry, you were talking about the offer. Well, it turns out that Martin Blower, God rest him, knew where the new bypass road is going because he was knocking off Eve Draper from the council, God rest her. And then that reporter, God rest him, finds out about the route and tells me this land is very valuable. Ten times what George Merchant and Martin Blower, God rest them, offered me. So with them having passed on, I decided to sell it on myself to some folks from the city that Martin, George and Eve, God rest the lot of them, have been talking to. Apparently they want to build a big shopping center or something. Of course, Cousin Sissy won't be too happy about that, but as far as I'm concerned, Cousin Sissy can go and fuck. Would you just excuse me for just one second? I mean, that is almost the Roger Rabbit thing all over again. The road is coming, the road is coming, and now everybody must die. And yet, the way that it ends up playing out in this film is it kind of feels like a red herring. No, 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 no. We just killed him because he's a terrible actor. But honestly, the script they had, it was a bigger part. It was more folded in, but it was so long that they just snipped out a lot of that, and they snipped out a lot of the subplot that I actually find to be the most horrific. And we don't even get that much time to really think about how horrific it is, but it is, which is that these townspeople are basically systematically killing all of the male children as soon as they become teenagers. Because as soon as they do one thing wrong, they're drinking at the pub and they get in trouble, or they're stealing cookies, all of the male teens are just like, dead and we see them in that underground bunker of dead bodies and he easily gets the hoodie kids on his side to help tag everything because the hoodie kids probably know if they're not stupid that they're going to be killed next those hoodie kids have to have seen all of the older kids that they looked up to at school get disappeared those hoodie kids definitely know what's coming they have to on some level how horrific is that living in a town where you're sure that as soon as you really hit puberty it's all over Oh my God, I did not think about it like that at all. I just thought that those were like visiting kids. I I just chalked it up to, I guess, honestly, I didn't have a connection to those kids. And wow, you're blowing my mind. 
Yeah, it's all the little ones that like lied about their age. It's the super bad kids. All the super bad kids are dead. But now, meanwhile, you would think that they would be surrounding Nick then because Nick is the one bringing them in, taking care of them, busting them, right? But they kind of react to him like, oh, what are you doing? You're too aggressive. Now, meanwhile, they're too aggressive. But I wonder why they wouldn't want to bring him into the fold. That's true. I guess he's too by the book to be by their book. Or maybe he's just not a townsperson. Maybe that too. But I do think that's one of the things that I feel like scrambles the message of the film in that from the beginning scenes where he's showing up and arresting all these teenagers who are underage drinking, you kind of assume that the point of the film is going to be like, hey, cop, chill out a little bit, you know, lighten up a little bit. These guys are like, hey, take it easy, take it easy. And then the message is like, actually, no, don't take it easy because there's murder everywhere and the bad guys are also not taking it easy. And so in that very last scene where everything is put to right and he's back on the force and all the bad people are gone and arrested, the way he kind of solves it is he's like, what we see is him like getting a call on his car radio that there's dirty hippies going through recycling bins, the kind of small crime that you think that he would have learned to let go But he's like, no, I'm going to go get him. No, I'm going to go get him. He's still like on the attack mode. And I was like, is that a mistake? Like, what is this film exactly trying to say? Is it contradicting itself? What is going on? I think that this is where it's a little bit muddy because a cop movie has a clean, clear villain. But to the point that we've been making, this movie is about really investing in these weirdos of this town. And I think it's a different feeling. Not that they're not wrong. They are 100% wrong. But It just hits you a little bit differently, I think. It does. I think it's just because there's part of me that right now wants to believe that the townspeople's first presentation of how to solve crime, neighborhood councils, it wants to believe that that's actually a really good path going forward. So I think just the non-movie part of me. The social part of you. Yeah, that part of me that's also like, how can we fix policing? I should not be looking to this movie for answers. So I'm just calling myself out for trying to pretend that there's answers in this movie. And yet calling myself out for being like, oh, I wanted to believe in the fake answer and you told me it was wrong. (laughs) Well, you know, I think that this movie basically underlines something that we all know, right? Everything in moderation. It can't all just be the town council. They can't just have video cameras everywhere at any given point because then with the power they try to get, they will act in the most corrupt way. It can't just be police officers. You have to, everyone's got to step up just a little bit and work together. And this is a movie where I think at the end, you're seeing a little bit more of that working together. The police are actually stepping up to do their job. The kids are helping out the police, right? And that helps them defeat this enemy in the town. I think that there is something there because one of the things about you know, Simon Pegg and Edgar Wright, is they don't take scripting lightly. This is not just a script that they just kind of put out. Like we said, they did research. They wrote it over 18 months. They really agonized and tried to figure out something. They created more of an Agatha Christie version, which they do show off in the film. And they found this. So I think they explore a lot of different avenues. I think part of that means that There's a lot in here. There's a lot in this pot and stuff that they probably didn't want to get rid of and stuff that's really good that I wouldn't say get rid of. But that's why I think at parts it can feel bloated. And I also think the message isn't as clean because I think that they don't want to give the message of, well, just trust the cops. They're the best. Let them lead with absolute authority because 
the movie starts off showing you that that's not the right way either. And it's now showing you that the council's not the right way either. I think it's, I think it actually is a great point of view, but it's a headier one. Yeah. Did you catch, by the way, that in England they use a different version of the Miranda rights than we have here? No. You do not have to say anything. However, it may harm your defense if you fail to mention when questioned something you later rely on in court. Anything you do say can be given in evidence. I looked into this a little bit because I was like, that's interesting. Like, instead, they say you do not have to say anything, but it may harm your defense if you do not mention when questioned something that you later rely on in court. And so apparently the history of this in England is that for most of the 1900s, the tradition was that defendants didn't have to talk at all in court. The defendants didn't have to talk. That once you were on trial, you had the right to stay very, very silent. And instead of even being on the stand and having to take questions from the prosecution, you could just write a statement of like what you said happened and they would read it. But then they started to change that and they allowed suspects to testify in their own behalf if they wanted to. And so this whole idea of speech was a little bit different there. It was kind of raised up a little bit differently. Because what they didn't have in England was they didn't have the right to not answer questions before the trial. So up all the way up until like 1912 in England, they were allowed to torture you to try to make you answer questions until they're like, okay, we can't torture you, but we really do think that suspects have to be talking. They really wanted to make them talk. And so this was them being like, if you don't talk, we can actually use your silence against you, which I think is how it still is from everything I was trying to read. Like they can say, you refuse to answer this and you refuse to answer that, which is such a different spin than call a lawyer. That is actually fascinating. Now, let me give you a little bit of a legal perspective. Amy, did you think that this movie had a far-fetched plot when they were out chasing a swan? I mean, I am scared of swans. Swans are fucking assholes. By the way, great Stephen Merchant cameo there where he asks him to give a description of the swan and it just basically devolves into, it's a swan. But it is not incredibly far-fetched for police to go out and capture swans. They have gone out to do just that because people call the police when their swans have gone missing. This happens in the UK a lot, and now it is often referenced when another case like this pops up in a small town. So police are out there capturing swans. Paul, again, five-year anniversary here. If you don't think I found footage of a British cop Capturing uh, a swan. That's what Again, I need. What are we even doing there. here? Because here it is. Some people say that policing in the country is a bit like hot fuzz. People come around and say, oh, I've been catching all them swans. But well, here you go. We have been catching them swans. So I've got to be careful because these things are vicious. Right. Fly my pretty. Ooh, look at his face. You know the traffic. Come But no, swans scare the hell out of me. We've talked about this on so many previous episodes. I don't even need to get into it. But I believe that swans sound like the devil. And I believe they like to creep up on you and hiss like the devil just to freaking terrify you. They're basically like living statues. I hate swans. Love ducks. Hate swans. Geese are fine. Um, can we talk about the character in this movie that I am obsessed with? Um, Michael Armstrong, who is a very tall man, about 6'6". Six, six. His nickname is Lurch, and he only speaks by using the word uh, yarp for yes or no. This was a great 
Bond villain. And what's so funny is Timothy Dalton, obviously uh, James Bond, in the most violent version of James Bond, I think that we've seen recently, has a henchman, like has a villain henchman. Um, What did you think of this guy? I mean, my favorite scene is when Simon Pegg knocks him out and then has to try to imagine yes. how to talk like him on the walkie-talkie. Michael, are you there? Michael, is everything okay? Yarp. Sergeant Angel's been taken care of. Yarp. He's not going to get back up again. Narp. Oh, when I think about how well-crafted this movie is, it is in that just silence where he knows that we're all thinking, oh, God, we actually don't even know how he would answer this question. <laughs> and and the fact that it worked, because it is that weird Star Wars world where, like, Chewbacca says, and people go, oh, okay, you think it's, uh, you know, the uh, hyperdrive, right? And, like, here, every Yarp, you know, is... <laughs> He could have said Yarp and it would have worked. It's I am Groot. I guess I should say I am Groot. But I did love how much joy Timothy Dalton got in displaying him, but also in how much joy Timothy Dalton brings to this villain. Because he is set up as our villain. He's got the mustache, which was Timothy Dalton's idea. He wanted to add that. He felt like it made him more smarmy. And he is clearly wrong from the very, very, very beginning. Lock me up. I'm sorry? I'm a slasher, and I must be stopped. You're a what? A slasher of prices. <laughs> Just kidding. I'm Simon Skinner. I run the local supermarché. Pop in and see me sometime. My discounts are criminal. Catch me later! And I love him in this. Like, this is such a fun role where I feel like he's just hitting the right amount of, not parody, but... He's definitely one of the larger characters in the movie. And I don't know if that's just because he's got the mustache, but when we first are introduced to him where he's running down the street, like he just has a little bit of a a younger energy. And I think as an audience, we're trained to be like, okay, that's our bad guy. That's who we're watching. And I, I just think that he plays the comedy here really, really well. I mean, as does everybody, but he's also doing it. I guess what I'm saying is he's doing it slightly broader, but I think that the movie needs that. Yeah, I think he is exactly on point. He's almost so villainous that you think, surely he actually can't be the bad guy. Like, surely he's so clearly the villain that you're just screwing with me, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when you reveal at the end that his plan was nothing elaborate, like it was just because he didn't like the design of a house or he didn't like the acting in a play, it kind of makes him... I think even a more interesting character. And yes, he's like kind of the head. I don't even know if he's the head of the organization. Would you say he's the head of the organization? Or just I a member know. of it? I'd say he's, gosh, it kind of feels like Jim Broadbent is the head, but it also feels like he's maybe the brains or the engine. Maybe. Maybe the financial yeah. weight behind it. The salesman or the something. I mean, I love that scene where Simon Pegg is interrogating him and they do the little technical detail of like not just showing you the flashbacks. You know, I feel like this film actually does a pretty good job handling the flashback of very important information, right. you know, repeating like the killers, the killers, the killers. And then this one, not just having the flashback, but playing the flashback backward and then playing the sound under the flashback backward just to be like, okay, if we have to put this in, we're going to make it more visually and audibly interesting. 
My suspicions were first aroused when you appeared at the scene of the Blower Draper death on the outskirts of Sanford, despite the fact that you live and work in the centre of the village. I couldn't help but recall your comments at the theatre on the previous evening. When you not only indicated an awareness of the couple's affair, but also inferred that Eve's connections with the council might make her privy to important information. And again, this is where the editing really works great in this movie, because it also, you're so used to that pace that it doesn't feel like a gimmick or a trick. It's like, oh, no, no, this is how the movie is. So I think it actually works great for flashbacks. I just felt like it was fun for me to see this guy who I think we've seen so much play a swashbuckling kind of suave man play this not i wouldn't even say he's a creep just kind of like a loser right like a, he's a kind of just like a a nerd he's not that bad of a guy i mean he stocks shelves he's an essential worker but and you can't be mad about that he's out there enjoying every <laughs> every customer that comes into a store and you know what he's not wrong either about how bad romeo and juliet is I absolutely love the reveal that this town is basing their Romeo and Juliet, not even on Romeo and Juliet, but just on the Baz Luhrmann movie. Like they're doing their book report on the movie that they you know, only saw instead of reading the book. Right. Oh, when Lucy Punch pops up with the wings and then they just go into this. <gasps> poison. I'll kiss thy lips. Aptly some poison doth ya hang on him. Bang! Love me, love me, say that you love me Fool me, fool me, go on, fool me I can't care about anything but you Also, man, when are we going to do that movie on this show? Oh, I would love to. It actually made me want to do it. I was like, wow, I haven't thought about that movie in a long time. And... I, I think it's worth it. I think it is is something that we should definitely take a look at. You know, I do want to just call out some of these other little nods that go on here. Obviously, I think most uh, fans of Edgar Wright in this film know that Peter Jackson is the Santa Claus that stabs Simon Pegg in the hand. Uh, a great little small cameo. But the thing that I didn't realize, or maybe when I saw it, it didn't really mean that much to me, but I didn't realize that the actress playing... Simon Pegg's girlfriend, the person working at the murder scene, the grisly murder scene in the beginning of the film, is Kate Blanchett. Oh, yeah. Right here in this scene. Janine, I've been transferred. I'm moving away for a while. Well, I'm not Janine. <clears throat> Janine, I've been transferred. I'm moving away for a while. And you know what is so wonderful about that? Is just like how in the cop office we get this idea of, like, you can't make us look bad in London. Here we get this idea of, by the way, when a group of people put on the same costume you will have no idea who is who, which is the Black Hoods all over again. It's like foretelling both things about the crime. And I do find it to be such a relief that there isn't like this other female romantic interest like you were saying, that Janine doesn't show up, that she's not the person who keeps calling from London and they get back together, that none of that matters at all. And this goes back to what we were just talking about. This movie, in many ways, pays homage to all the things we love of these movies, but doesn't just fall into the gimmicky traps of them. They challenge themselves. How do we make it more interesting? How do we actually not just do a parody of the typical romantic subplot that no one really likes in these action movies? How do we make the ending a little bit more fulfilling? How do we make things less black and white, more interesting, and 
also prove the point because Simon Pegg is not a character who's a meathead. He's not just a gun-happy cop. He is someone who takes such pride in his job and his skill set that he is somebody who's continually working, whether it's doing judo or uh, chess. Like there's the opening of this movie feels to me like the opening of Rushmore. It has that Max Fisher esque level of want to be perfect. Uh, and I like that about him. He's not, you know, he is smart. He is good. He does the research. He doesn't go off half cocked. He is doing everything by the letter of the law. And I think when you do that, you, get enemies but also at the same time i think this movie is saying like what about him like that he needs to loosen up or that he just can't do it alone and i feel like maybe that's the the message that you're sending for him is he can't he can't do it alone because he won't have any friends if he does it alone and i think that's the reason why he got rid of his girlfriend or why he wasn't there for when he does that monologue about not being there for (laughs) birthdays and funerals and all these sort of things like he the the journey here is him understanding and accepting a partner. It's learning he should love a, a coworker because yeah. that way at least you're with your partner on his birthday, even if you're both working. And it is scary because it isn't like Simon Pegg changes. It's more just like he finds a best friend who's willing to just do what he does too and go hard and arrest hippies. Right. But don't you think that it's also in sharing a part of himself? I do think it's a little bit bigger than just like working on, you know, on a birthday. I I think it is about him learning how to share. And the great thing about Nick Frost's character is that, you know, Nick Frost could have just went along with the town, but because he gave him time and energy, he supported his friend and they made a difference together. Like there was no way that Simon Pegg could have done that by himself. You know, he could have figured it out by himself, but he couldn't do it by himself. And at the end of the film, everyone still has their personalities, but he's a part of it. He is making the inappropriate jokes or setting up the inappropriate jokes for Olivia Coleman. Like he is a part of a community. And I think that that's what we're talking about too. Like the, should you be a leader of a community? Should you be a follower of a community or what, how does a community work effectively? Maybe when everybody is being recognized for what they're good at. And I'm going to bring this back to Inside Out. Because I think that that's the journey there. I think that this is a, they do a great job of making a very internal journey here into an external journey. You actually get to see that transformation happening instead of it being a little bit more of self-reflection. You see how when he does make these changes, things start to happen. I can see that. But then I also do feel like I hear in his voice, you know, he's even telling Nick like why he is a cop in the first place. You know, when he's talking about his own childhood here. What made you want to be a policeman? Officer. What made you want to be a policeman officer? I don't remember a time when I didn't want to be a police officer, apart from the summer of 1979 when I wanted to be Kermit the Frog. (laughs) It all started with my Uncle Derek. He was a sergeant in the Met. He bought me a police paddle car when I was five. I rode round in it every second I was awake, arresting kids twice my size for littering and spitting. I got beaten up a lot when I was young, but it didn't stop me. I wanted to be like Uncle Derek. He sounds like a good bloke. Actually, he was arrested for selling drugs to students. What a cunt. Probably bought the pedal car with the proceeds. Needless to say, I never went near it again. I just let it rust. But I never forgot the clear sense of right and wrong that I felt at the wheel of that pedal car. 
I had to prove to myself that the law could be proper and righteous and for the good of humankind. It was from that moment I was destined to be a police officer. Shame. How so? I think you would have made a great Muppet. <laughs> I feel like I hear in that something that I think about a lot, which is I think that there are just different types of fundamental brain wiring. And there is a type of brain wiring where I feel like there are just people who are very confident believing in black and white things, you know? And I guess they provide a service, not a service I love, but some, you know, people have to give up parking tickets. I guess if people didn't give up parking tickets and people just took up the meters forever and there was never any way to park anywhere in the city, I'd lose my mind. But like the ability to be very black and white about things like this is right and that is wrong is something that I'll confess, I have so little of that that it makes me nervous. I'm like, shouldn't I be more clear about what is right and wrong? But also, I just want to go back to what you just said and say, just because you give out a parking ticket doesn't mean that that's the only part of you, right? Well, no, but I just feel like if you're giving out a parking ticket and somebody runs up to you and they're like, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm just two minutes late. My, you know, my little kid is inside or something like that. And you still give them the ticket You can, and you don't feel bad about it. That is like a real sense of they broke the law and I trust in the law. And I don't have that at all. I I think that if you were a parking ticket police officer, you would lose that part of yourself because it's the most annoying question. Can I just can you not write? I'm here. I'm here. And that's why I think whoever invented those as, as somebody who's also appealed to police officers, I'm not saying I'm fully on the side of this, but. I think the whoever gave those police officers those electronic ticketing things. So once you press the button in, it already started printing the ticket. Like I can't stop writing the ticket. I because it, it's like my job is to give tickets. I that's what I got to do. Your job is to put money in the meter. My job is to give the tickets. I know it's not great. We're not obviously in professions that uh, really are dictated by intense alliance to, you know, the legal way that things need to be done. But I, I do think that like. It's unfair. You can have a police officer who doesn't love that part of the job, but that's what their job is. It's like, I may not want to stock a shelf. I got to fucking stock a shelf. I've done plenty of things I didn't want to do. I got to fucking do it. That's fair. That's fair. I do think being a parking person is probably a very hard job. Yeah, I think I so think too. I think whenever you tell people that you have to do that job, people get mad at you. I would not want to walk around the world telling people that I have to, that I give out parking tickets. That's got to be really difficult. I doubt that people go around and tell anybody anything about that. Why would you? Yeah. They have my empathy, but I'm terrified of them at the same time. But without them, Amy, the city wouldn't get the money it just deserves. Here's the thing I will say. I always thought I was incredibly lucky here in Los Angeles because I never got a parking ticket and I was always getting back to my meter just a little bit late. And then I realized um, it was because I drove a Prius, of course. And apparently for a couple of years, cops couldn't give Priuses tickets on meters because it was like part of the perks of driving a hybrid. What? Yes. So that was, uh, my luck was ill found. <laughs> I did not know that was happening. Wow. Well, let's talk about this movie in the sense of the trilogy, just because I think it's interesting. We've, we've talked about a lot of the things about this film, but I think that these things also spread over to Shaun of the Dead and and also The World's End. For you, I know that you haven't watched this movie in a long time. Like, where did you fall on rewatching it? Where do you fall in putting this within the uh, Cornetto trilogy? Well, I think I need to watch World's End again to be sure because I actually have a, a memory of very much liking World's End and I want to know if that holds up. Gosh, you know, it's so weird. Like, Yesterday, as I was going to bed, I was telling my boyfriend, 
how surprised I was to realize that I actually did admire a lot of hot fuzz. And he was like, you like every Edgar Wright movie. And I was like, no, I don't. And because I really thought I didn't. And then I went through them all and I realized I do. So I guess I just like Edgar Wright on the whole, which surprised me. I didn't realize that I have actually never disliked any of his movies. Well, I'll say something about Edgar Wright that I think is true. He, to me, feels like Martin Scorsese or Quentin Tarantino who have studied film in such a way that everything that they do is so deliberate and so thought out that even if you don't love it, you appreciate it. And and there is something about his style that is undeniable. It's at its worst, it's art that you don't appreciate. At its best, it is something that you love. And I think you can see that in the way that he has transitioned throughout his entire career. You know, last night in Soho, I loved. I thought that was great. I just really enjoyed it. And I think that that movie had some backlash to it because I think people wanted something different. You know, but every one of his films that he does, I think that he really challenges himself to make it visually different, tonally different, but yet it all feels like it's coming from the same voice. Like I think that probably Scott Pilgrim is one of my least favorite Edgar Wright movies, but I appreciate the fuck out of it. I think it's awesome. I think it just is doing things that I've never seen, capturing a comic book style in a certain way, but I also felt, and this is maybe my own issue with movies, I hate movies where there's like a countable number in it. It always takes me out. Like So it's like, you know, there's eight boyfriends or whatever it is. Like, and you know, oh, we're only on boyfriend four. Like it starts to pace the movie weird in my own head. And maybe that's my own like ADD brain of it all. Oh, I kind of like countable numbers, but yeah, I, I mean, I can also hear your point, you know, but I love everybody in that. And I just felt like there's a little bit of a disconnection or maybe I was so connected to Scott Pilgrim. I don't know that. I mean, again, I just recently rewatched it. And I was like, oh, I like this more than I thought I did, but I want to rewatch it. Cause I remember liking it. But I want to, yeah, I wonder if I'm having a thing with Edgar Wright where I always just assume that there's movies of his I don't like and then I rewatch them and I realize I do. Well, I think what his films do, like the Coen brothers as well, is they hold up. They are kind of oddly bulletproof in this way where they are really just well made. And I think when he's firing on all thrusters, which he often is, it's it's coming from a character point of view. It's coming from uh, a stylistic point of view. And it is not repetitive. I don't know. I I think that, like, you know, there are a handful of filmmakers that really upend their own style each time. And again, I'm mentioning, I feel like I'm mentioning a bunch of male directors, you know, like Kubrick and Scorsese and Quentin Tarantino and the Coens. I'm sure that there are, are others out there that I'm just not off the top of my head bringing up. But he is, to me, somebody who is really... I think consistently interesting. I'm always excited to see what he's got going on next. You know, I think that's actually what my problem is now that we're talking about it, which is his films in being so different. I think I think of them simplistically. Like I thought of the hot fuzz as the Michael Bay movie. Right. I was like, yeah, that's the kind of zombies. That's kind of about cops. And it became really simplistic in my mind. And so I thought of the film as though it was simplistic. But when I watched the film, Every single frame is cut together so perfectly. Every bit of dialogue is like sharp so perfectly. And I realize how much thought is in every single second of the movie. 
And he's doing what I always say I want movies to do, which is I feel I feel something about the central relationship in here. Yeah. Between the two Nicks, I'll call them now. Well, this is my issue. When I went to go watch this movie, I was like, well, it's not going to beat Shaun of the Dead for me. And then that first hour, I was riveted and I was laughing. I was like, oh, wow, this is, you know, there is something about having a bigger budget. There is something about bringing this in in a bigger way. I, I don't know if I want to pit them all against each other because I also think that there's like an element of like the big chill. I think it's a beautiful like farewell movie, the, um you know, The World's End, where it kind of, I think it feels more adult than the other two, which is really interesting. It does. I feel like I remember having this layer of sadness, but then I actually don't feel like I also can't remember that much about it except people jumping behind bars. No, it, it like I, I think all of his movies have this catchy quality to it, but that one I think is less of a comedy. There's just some more there. It's funny. I, I know it's like, it's hard to break it down, but there is something about his movies that I think challenge it. It would be very easy to be like, we did the zombie movie. We did the cop movie. And now we're doing the alien movie. And not only do the characters change, not, I think Nick Frost is fantastic. And at the world's end, you know, there are these things that really like, to me, maybe what I'm going to say about it is, it maybe is what flavor are you into having that night? You know, not like one is better than the other. It's like, well, some nights I want strawberry. Some nights I want the blue and some nights I want the mint chocolate chip. Okay. I mean, I can roll with that. But I do have to say, one of the things I thought was interesting when I was going through like the reaction to the movie when it came out was that American critics love Top Fuzz. The people who went hardest on it were actually the British. Really? British critics, yeah, at the major papers, the British critics did not like this movie. You know, Daily Mirror said, excuse the cliche, but to make a movie this self-indulgent, this long and saddled with this many in-jokes is little short of criminal. And the Daily Mail said, it seems to me that Wright and Peg have misunderstood their previously successful formula. As with their first zombie movie, an American-dominated form of cinema has been transposed to parochial England. But Shaun of the Dead already had something pertinent to say about the inhabitants of modern Britain. That so many of us behave like zombies that an invasion of the undead would hardly be noticeable. Hot Fuzz has no such originality of observation. The really disappointing aspect of Hot Fuzz is not that it's a half hour too long, though it is, or less funny than Shaun of the Dead, ditto. The sadness is that its makers seem to have nothing to say about Britain or Hollywood. And actually that one a little bit kind of hit home. I can see that point. Right. That he's using these cliches and tropes really well he's using his setting really well but is he saying anything about it really that's his own that isn't just you know kind of updated wicker man everybody in this village kills people is he using it in a way that midsummer did about a village where people keep you know getting killed you know is does he have a deeper point and i i don't know if he does actually yeah i think he's maybe talking just more about cinema not about the british experience if that makes sense Right, like he's commenting on movies, but he's not commenting on culture. Yeah. I can see that. So then maybe I would give my tip off to Shaun of the Dead, because I do like what it says about people just being so zoned out. Yeah, I guess, but there's this is what this town is too. This town is zoned out as well. It is zoned out as well. But I guess, well, okay. There's zoned out in Shaun of the Dead, because to be alive in modern life is to be a zombie. But here, they're sort of zoned out but because they're swayed into thinking that life is innocent, but it's zoned out, but is it commenting on anything? 
I think it is. It's like, well, right under your noses, they're killing the children of this town. They are the old people, the people who are trying to like, basically the police are so zoned out that they're not realizing that this little group of villagers are controlling everything going on beyond them. And that's why when Simon Pegg comes into this town, he has his eyes open. He's like, wait, this is wrong. This is wrong. This is wrong. And he's actually engaged and makes a difference, you know? And that's the same thing with that world's end too. It's like, oh, they're zoned out and then they're, oh, they're aliens. I don't know. They're, that's another thing I didn't really understand. Like this is a little bit about how we all have a tendency to be navel gazing. Well, it's so funny. It's like, we're living in a world of such fantasy by loving movies that maybe we're not paying attention to the actual world around us. But boy, do I really, really, really love movies anyways. Uh, then, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. The more I pull on it, the less it makes sense. But maybe it doesn't have to for this one. Maybe I'll just let it be. I appreciate maybe that. Maybe I don't have to say something smart. I feel like I should say something smart. You don't have to say anything at all. And look, I'll say this. What about the idea that this is a movie that when we said to everyone that listens to this show, vote on what you want us to do, they picked this. It has to account for something. It wasn't close. It wasn't like, oh, those other two films were in the mix. Nope, it was this one. And I'm excited to hear why. Me too. And we're going to get that in our fifth episode when our listeners will decide which one is going to space. You'll be doing that on a vote. Make sure you check out all of our social media avenues to get in on that. But we will let you to tell us why you picked this movie. I, and I want you to call the number to tell us what it is. That number is 424-419-5745. 424-419-5745. Give that number a call. Tell us why this is one of your picks, but also why is it the best of the Cornetto? Why is it the best of the Edgar Wright films? Why is it your favorite comedy? I want to know, because we've obviously just spent a little time unpacking it, and I, I think we, I understand why you like it. I understand why I like it, but I want to hear why it got to the height of this list. I would never have picked it as my top two comedies, but I love it. So again, we throw to the audience, and next week we continue to go to the audience as we look at our first drama, because Hot Fuzz will be kind of taking on Roger Rabbit. I think it's a little bit of an unfair uh, battle, but they will. And next week, we are going to There Will Be Blood, Paul Thomas Anderson, coming in hot here. I have not watched this film since the theater, and I am so excited to rewatch this. Okay, can we get milkshakes? It's going to be hot. Can't wait. And if you tell me that Khalees' song, Milkshake, is the number one song that week, it would be, we should just end the show immediately. Uh, all right, take a listen to the trailer. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I've traveled over half our state to be here tonight. I'm a family man. I run a family business. This is my son and my partner, H.W. Plainview. We offer you the bond of family that very few oilmen can understand. I do my own drilling. And the men that work for me work for me, and they are men I know. Tell me something worth hearing. This money's yours. What would you say to a fair price for this one? Yeah. 
You can find There Will Be Blood wherever you get your streaming films and make sure you check out your local public library that allow you to stream films for free as well. All right, and a big thank you to our producer, Josh Richmond, our associate producer, Jessica Cisneros, our engineer, Casey Holford, our EPs, Cody Fisher and Colin Anderson, our MVP, Molly Reynolds, our theme song by Michael Cassidy, our fan art by Kim Troxall. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, rate, review, and follow us on Apple and also on Amazon. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and you can talk about all these movies on the Paul Shear Discord. Just go to discord.gg slash Paul Shear. Unspooled t-shirts are available at tpublic.com slash unspooled, but you can also get your very own deck of unspooled playing cards, which are absolutely gorgeous, all designed by Kim Troxell at podswag.com. Just find the unspooled show and you'll see it right there. You can hear past episodes of the show and bonuses like screen test on Stitcher Premium and for the official API, that's the Paul and Amy Institute list of our favorite films that we've ever done from the show. You can head on over to unspooledpod.com. At Delta, we know Mike and 8C prefers reality TV to reality. So we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. On the next flight, 8C is Mandy, a foodie. So we offer all types of food options. Because at Delta, everyone flies their own way. Delta, keep climbing. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.